Well, hey, it's great for us to be together. And if you don't know, this is kickoff weekend, which basically just means we're starting another ministry year. So we want to talk a little bit about where we're going, some of the opportunities, the challenges that are ahead of us. But the biggest thing is that we've got so many people gathering again after summer vacations and being back. Uh, and so if you are able to join us for Sunday afternoon here at Downs Road or over at our Mission Campus, uh, we're going to be having a big party outside and uh, would love to have you with us if you can make it. I also want to give a special shout out to our real life church over in Fleetwood, neighborhood of Surrey. It's their first indoor in-person meeting in 18 months. Now, Real Life is our newest Northview campus, and they rent a school gymnasium, and all those rentals were canceled because of COVID, and so this is the first weekend for them to be back in person, inside, and so we want to just do a shout out, say hello to them, and all of you on all of our other campuses, that you would know about this, and that you would pray for them. So just this little bit of a disclaimer, uh, two or three times a year, we take a weekend away, sort of press pause in a normal series and just talk about what's going on. And you could call it a state of the union. You could call it a vision talk. You could call it a family conversation, call it whatever you want. Uh, but this is one of those weekends. So if you're new to Northview, uh, you need to know this is sort of not our normal fare uh, of going through a book of the Bible. It's just a one-off type of a weekend. We've got some exciting days ahead of us as a church. We know this, both individually and corporately as a church family. God is opening up some really exciting doors for missions and for multiplication partnerships across Canada and all around the world. And I'm excited that in October, we're gonna have a guest from Newfoundland and we're gonna do an Atlantic Canada focus. And then another week, we're gonna talk about global missions. Uh, these are great things. But we also know that our ministry, first and foremost, begins close to home in our individual lives as we get together and gather to encourage one another as we grow deep in the Word of God, and then as we go back out into our community, into the 24-7s of our worlds where God has placed us and where He is using us. And over this ministry year, you're going to hear us using some new language, some new handles that we have put on our discipleship strategy that will just help us describe the how and the what that we're doing. That as a church family, we want to gather and grow and go that we want to gather people unto Jesus, and that we want to grow them up in Jesus, and then we want to send them back out on mission for Jesus. So we want to gather them to Jesus, grow them up in Jesus, and send them back out on mission. So gather, grow, and go. It's, it's why we wanted you to see that video that we just watched before the, the message, how a simple conversation in a coffee shop over a period of many months leads to a relationship being built and then expanded into a family friendship, ultimately an invitation to gather with God's people in church services that led to a spiritual commitment and a growth with roots going down deep into God's word. A really graphic illustration of gathering and growing and going. It's a great story but we also have some challenging days in front of us. And frankly, some unprecedented challenges in our society. The speed at which 
Our society is running away from Christianity and from the biblical values that have rooted our society is astonishing. We are not just in a post-Christian world, but we are fast approaching an anti-Christian world. I call Oregon home. I grew up in the state of Colorado, but both my parents were from Oregon. And so we spent a chunk of every summer out in Oregon and particularly enjoyed the ocean shores in Oregon. And if you're familiar with the beaches of Oregon, you will know that for all of its stunning beauty, that the waters and the waves of the Pacific along this stretch of real estate are really dangerous waters. There are rogue waves that will come and surprise you out of nowhere. So if you're swimming in Oregon, you always face out and keep an eye out on that horizon for one of those rogue waves coming at you. But even more dangerous is the natural phenomenon, the violent outflow currents that are known as riptides or rip currents. And they're aptly named because they literally will rip you off your feet and drag you out to sea. And even the strongest swimmers struggle against the force of those currents. And every year in Oregon, dozens of unsuspecting people are dragged out to sea and many of them die. Now, people who live along the coast will know that there's a counterintuitive way, a strategy to survive a riptide. Instead of trying to swim against the current, you actually turn and swim with the outflow current and then try to push yourself away to the edges and get to calmer waters so you can make a U-turn and come back to the beach. Today, I want to raise the warning flag on the beaches of our lives to say that we are entering a time of great spiritual challenge. And that if we're not wise, discerning, and spiritually nimble, that the outflow currents of our culture will kill us. We must learn to navigate these waters. And most important, we must know that we cannot do it alone. That we're in desperate need of someone watching over our lives, keeping guard, helping us, and sustaining us. How will I stand against the onslaught of a hostile world? How will I stay true to my Savior without a greater source of help? So the key thought that I want you to take with you this weekend is if we are going to survive, and not just survive, if we're going to thrive spiritually in the days ahead, we cannot do it alone. I need a helper. You need a helper. I need a keeper, a guard, and a shelter. And so this one question, if you remember nothing else, take this question and ponder it in your mind. Who is your keeper? Who is your keeper? And I want to use two texts to answer that question. So if you've got your Bibles, we are going to read in John 17 and also over to Psalm 21. So John 17 first, and then we'll get over to Psalm 121. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he spends his final evening with his disciples before his betrayal and death. And we get to listen in on the intimacy of this conversation and a prayer that he prays on behalf of the disciples and on behalf of us. So I want to read about 10 verses from John 17, and it says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. 
and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This prayer was for the disciples and it was for us, those who would believe in Jesus through their testimony. And you can keep your Bibles open and I just want to do a recap and, and sort of put it into our own words. Jesus is saying, I've got a specific ask for you, Father. I'm just about finished the work that you've given me to do and then I'm coming home, Father, and I'm leaving behind these friends of mine. And so I have this ask that you, Father, would keep them. While I was with them, I was protecting them, I was guarding them, I was keeping them. So for their joy, and even in the face of being hated by the world, Lord, I'm asking you now, Lord, would you keep them? Would you protect them? Would you guard them? Now significant there in verse 15 that he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to keep them. They don't belong in the world any more than I belonged in the world. They are citizens of a different world. So, Lord, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy by your word. Your word is truth. And I am sending them out into the world, Father, just like you sent me out into the world. Oh, Father, keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Now, what did Jesus know that these men didn't know? That they would be hated because they carried the name of King Jesus out into the world. And church history tells us that all but one of them died violent deaths in fulfilling their mission. And what Jesus' prayer should tell us, if it tells us nothing else, is that we can't survive on this mission that we have been given unless the Father keeps us. In the storms of life and in ministry, we need the Heavenly Father to watch over us. Now, as we read John 17... Some of you will have heard an echo to an Old Testament passage, specifically Psalm 121. So I ask you to have both places marked in your Bible. Psalm 121 asks a very pointed question. Where does my help come from? If Jesus prayed to the Father, Lord, keep them, guard them, help them. Where does my help come from? Psalm 121 asks. And the context is important because three times a year in Old Testament, Every God-fearing Jewish family was asked to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship and to remember the faithfulness of God, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And there were 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that were sung specifically as they made their journey to Jerusalem. They're called songs of ascent or psalms of ascent. And the echo from John 17 comes from Psalm 121 that declares loud and clear, the Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our help. So I want to read through Psalm 121 with you. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You see, it opens with that question. Where does my help come from? I look up to these mountains and I declare the glory of God. You know, in the place where we live in the Fraser Valley, I never get tired of looking up to the mountains, to the majesty and the beauty of God's handiwork that shouts out at us that as strong and mighty and magnificent as these granite cliffs might appear to us, that there is one who is bigger still, one who is greater still, the maker of heavens and the earth. But specific to this context is the thought of protection, not just the beauty of the mountains, but protection. Because you see, the journey to Jerusalem wasn't an easy path. Bandits and thieves and robbers knew full well those three festival weeks. They knew that three times a year, the roads to Jerusalem would be packed with people from all over the Middle East and Africa, that they would be carrying goods for sacrifice. Young animals, the first fruits of grain and wine, their money bags to pay for lodging, they were loaded. What an opportunity for a thief. And it's why pilgrimages were never done alone. They were always done in groups. It it explains a little bit why in in Luke chapter 2, if you've wondered, how was it that Jesus' parents, who were in Jerusalem for Passover, leave Jerusalem and they don't notice that Jesus isn't with them until supper time, a full day's travel away from Jerusalem. The point was they were traveling not alone, but they were traveling in a caravan with their family and friends, their acquaintances, and they just assumed that Jesus was somewhere in that caravan. So the pilgrim was always aware of the dangers that lurked in the hills. Now ask that question again as I look to the hills, Lord. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Verse 3 and 4, the Lord who doesn't sleep, who's always watching. The Lord who is guiding my steps. Verse 5 and 6, the Lord my keeper. My shade by day, my shelter by night. It's, It's a metaphor that he hides us under his umbrella of care. He shelters us against the storms. He hides us in the cleft of the rock. That 24 hours a day, the Lord is watching over us. The sun might beat down on you, or in other words, when it gets hot, you can take the heat coming at you because God's on your side. And the terrors of night won't disturb you. 
You can sweet, sleep sweetly at night because you know the Lord is guarding your home. Verse 7 and 8, the Lord watches over you. He is your keeper. On all occasions, in your coming in and in your going out, in all seasons, both now and forever, He does not change. He is ever on guard, ever watching over. Five times in eight verses, we hear that clarion call, the Lord is your keeper. My help comes from the Lord. So let me ask you that question again. Who is your keeper? Who is your keeper? If we're going to make it through the tsunami that is coming our way, we are going to survive the riptides, the rip cult currents of this culture. We will need a source of strength greater than ourselves. So those texts are going to anchor my next few comments. That as we head into this season of ministry, I want to highlight for you three challenges that are in front of us. And, and I'm going to do them in ascending order of importance and impact. And they are simply these, the Bucknam bombshell, the COVID controversy, and the riptide of culture. The Bucknam bombshell, the COVID controversy, and the riptide of culture. So first, the Bucknam bombshell. I mean, a year ago, None of us would have imagined that God was going to take Jeff and Jeannie to Chicago for Jeff to be the lead pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel. But in the Lord's providence, he took Jeff to Chicago. And so we find ourselves in a time of pastoral transition. And with pastoral transition, inevitably comes a time of refocusing, a time of change in style and in personality and in leadership direction. And we would be naive if we didn't think that this would be an unsettling time for a church, especially after a long-tenured pastor. Jeff was here for 15 years. He was, he is, a deeply respected Bible teacher. He was a deep theological thinker. He also had a really quirky sense of humor. You know this. Now, whether you loved everything about Jeff or if you disagreed on some nuances of his teaching, there's no question that God used our brother to lead this church well, and we should thank God for that. It would be stupid to think that we will not need a ton of prayer and patience and communication as we move into a new chapter. Things will change. And primarily, they're going to be little things. Jeff had a unique style. I have a unique style. And so if you loved Jeff, you may not love me. Happy to disappoint. Our staff transition, however, has been actually far greater than just losing our lead pastor. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but in the last 18 months... We have had nine pastors transition out of Northview. Some of this was related to downsizing our team during COVID, and others were simply people moving on to other areas and others' assignments. So in addition to Pastor Jeff, Andy Steiger, Paul Siemens, Ron Friesen, Johnny Markin, Imran Daniel, Kyle Meeker, and Jason Wall have all moved on to other ventures. 
And if that were the only thing that we were facing, it would be enough as a church family to call you to prayer, to remind you that in every church's story, there are those times of transition. Pastors come and they go. And we are in one of those now, and we need to stand together. But second, we have had, I don't know if you're aware of this, we have had a tiny little thing called the COVID controversy. Now, we have all been dealing with the implications of this pandemic privately. But there are also two challenges that we have faced as a church. And the first is just simply the upheaval of our schedules and our ability to meet. We have come through complete closures a year ago in March to partial openings last summer and into the fall. And then another complete lockdown at the end of November and then a partial reopening in late winter for outdoor events. And we could have services under tents and have a drive-in church. And then indoor groups of 50 could begin to meet. As long as everybody registered in advance and we would keep those groups separate from one another. And then on June 30th, Jeff Bucknam left the country and all restrictions were lifted. July 1st, it was not just Canada Day, but it was COVID Freedom Day. It was unexpected and it was celebrated. But you also know that two weeks ago, as the fourth wave infections began to rise again, that a new set of restrictions were put into effect. But this time around, we have a never before exception being granted. Never before in the previous closures, but in this one, churches, religious gatherings, and faith-based activities are given an exemption. Now, over the last year and a half, we've tried to respond as quickly as possible and to pivot well in all of these changes. But as you will know, every decision that we've made in the last 18 months has made somebody upset. Some have called us cowards for not standing up against the government mandates. And I won't even bother you with the crass language that I have heard on this issue and how we did it wrong. On the other end of the spectrum, there are voices that have told us that we have not done enough, that we should have gone above and beyond the public health order and what it required of us. And that second challenge leads us into this next thought, that the controversy that the COVID pandemic has caused is the division that it has revealed among us. And I'm gonna belabor this point for just a moment because we believe as staff and elders that this issue is what we would call a Romans 14 disputable matter. You see, the controversy in Romans 14 was this. Christians were eating meat that they had bought from the marketplace that may have been used in idol worship. And some Christians out of conscience were saying, I cannot and I will not touch that meat. It is contaminated. While other Christians were saying, meat is meat is meat. And no religious ceremony changes this chunk of protein into something else. And besides, those so-called idols are not gods at all. And so I am free to eat. So some ate and some did not eat. The problem that arose is that those who felt the freedom to eat began looking down their noses with contempt, despising their brothers that were abstaining. 
And on the other hand, those who were abstaining, not eating, were passing judgment and condemning and acting all self-righteous, that though they somehow were better Christians because they weren't eating. And Paul's admonition to them, you probably know this, Paul's admonition to them was simply this, stop it. If you're despising a brother or a sister, or if you are judging and condemning a brother or a sister, stop it. They have made their decision before God, so leave them alone. Will you really disrupt the fellowship of the body over a secondary issue? And oh, brothers and sisters, we need this admonition. I have heard from people on both ends of this controversy, and you know very well the debates. But what grieves me most is to hear of families that have divided over this issue, to hear of community groups that have disbanded because of these issues, and of friendships that have been crumbling under the weight of this controversy and so we are asking i am asking you to give each other the freedom and grace and respect of holding different views and that some of you you need to call a friend or a family member and get things right we are brothers and sisters in christ and we cannot let a secondary issue divide us beyond all that if you know someone Maybe they're medically vulnerable. Maybe they're not yet able to be out in public or to gather with the church. Someone who is lonely or stressed out or fearful. Would you take it upon yourself to give them a call, drop off a note or a gift, ask them how you can encourage them? How can you support them right now? Now, I know full well that in this point too, I have probably just said, in more than likely something that ticked off people on both ends of that spectrum. I understand that. So once again, I want to give you an email address where you can respond to this message. So please send your notes to jeff at pleasecomeback.com. Seriously, friends, those two issues that I've just highlighted pale in comparison to what I want to talk about next. And that is the riptide of our culture. Now, I don't know of any other time or season in my life where the people of God need to anchor themselves deeply in the knowledge of who God is and what He has done and who we are then in response to that. But as the mainstream of our culture turns aside from the biblical values that we have anchored us for hundreds of years, we face an unprecedented opportunity to live as agents of the kingdom of God to live as ambassadors who represent a different king and a different kingdom and a different way of doing life. As Jesus said, salt and light that are sent out into the world to preserve and illuminate. Uh, Ed Stetzer, uh, probably the best known religious sociologist in North America, has done an analysis of, of North American spiritual life and the, the shifts that have been changing. And I, I've used it before, but I wanna, I wanna show it to you again. Uh, if this picture represents the river of North American culture in its whole, he said that there are basically four streams that have always been in this North American river. Uh, at the very top, you will see a non-Christian stream, those who are either claim to be atheists or other world religions or simply that they just believe in nothing. 
And then the majority culture, nearly 75% of North American culture would still, even to today, claim, quote unquote, to be Christian. But it's made up of three different groups. There are cultural Christians who just say, well, I live in North America. It's a Christian country. Of course, I'm a Christian. There are congregational Christians. Those who show up at Christmas and an Easter, they probably got married in a church. If someone in their family dies, they will have a funeral at a church and they might do some special occasion. And then this bottom category are convictional Christians. About 20 or 25 percent of North American population who are actively engaged in the life of a local congregation. The difference in the past was this, that our mainstream culture at large was built around Judeo-Christian values, and it was almost as though there was an island in the middle of the river that separated those non-believing people from the rest of mainstream culture. But as we are flowing through time, what is happening is the shift in culture is now moving from the mainstream being here to the mainstream being here that cultural Christians and congregational Christians are more and more walking away from the life and the values of convictional Christianity, that there is a new cultural divide that is coming between us. And those of us who want to follow faithfully after Jesus are now down here in this stream by ourselves. The mainstream is on the other side of the island. Now, we could tear that apart a lot. There's a lot of information there, and it's great food for thought, frankly. But the problem with that chart is that life is not that clean and simple, and you know this. That we don't do life in these neat little categories everybody kept in their own little stream. The water in this river is all mixed together. In fact, as we looked at Jesus' prayer, it was very clear, it is very clear, when he says, Father, I am not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the river. I'm asking you, to keep them from the evil one while they swim against this current and while they act as agents of the kingdom, ambassadors as salt and light. Now, there is so much more that we could say about these challenges. In fact, it's where we're headed all the way through the fall up till Christmas. We are going to grab a chunk of Old Testament scripture that was written to a group of people living in very challenging times, crisis times like we seem to be headed into. And we are going to talk about what does it mean to live as an exile in a hostile culture. People who needed to get their eyes off of their circumstances and onto the Lord. And it is such a desperate need for us in these days. These days will require of us spiritual courage, a fortitude of conviction, and wisdom and great discernment. So my challenge to you today is simply this. We cannot and we dare not try to do this alone. We need one another on this journey. We need to help one another along the discipleship pathway so that we're not tossed back and forth by either the waves of doctrine or the waves of culture. And that we need the help of a capital K keeper. And if history tells us nothing else, it tells us that in times of great crisis, People get on their knees in prayer. It is why when you look back in history, it is the times that the church was at its most vibrant and flourishing life was in the midst of and coming out of these times of crisis. So, I get it. Kickoff weekend is a pale comparison 
to the Old Testament festival weeks. But there is an echo here, even if it is a faint echo. Those festival weeks were times when the people of God gathered to worship, to celebrate, and to remember the faithfulness of God in the past and trust Him for the path forward. And ultimately, it's here that we need to rest for a moment or two. That as you head out of the doors this week, out of the doors of the church, out of the doors of your house, and back into the 24-7 of daily life, I have to ask you this question. Who is your keeper? Who is your keeper? Because if we try to win this battle alone, we will lose. If you seek to swim against the riptide unaided by God, you will drown. But there is one who is greater. There is one who is watching over. We will not withstand the cultural tides that are coming against us. We may not even stay unified as brothers and sisters without the help of our keeper. So would you pray with and for one another? Would you pray for our staff and our elders and for our church in this time of transition? Would you strive for and work for the unity of the Spirit of God? And will you ask God to give us courage and wisdom in these coming days of cultural upheaval? There's two groups I want to pray for. Those who are weary and those who are playing around. You see, we can't do this alone. We need a keeper over our lives. And if you are growing tired in this struggle and you're saying, oh God, I don't know if I can get through another day, I want to pray for you. And if you are one of those people who's sitting on the fence, playing church on the weekends and playing the pagan life throughout the course of the week, I want to challenge you that in the coming days, it is going to grow increasingly impossible for you to live that double kind of life. The culture will eat you alive if you do not get a white, hot, zealous faith. So I want to pray for both groups. We can't do this alone. Jesus prayed, Father, keep them from the evil one. And the psalmist, when looking up to the hills, those hills that might have been filled with evil and danger, lifts his eyes above the hills and says, My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray for you. Father, you know the people listening to this message, and you know the ones who are simply weary along the journey. They are doing their very best to walk with you faithfully, to get their roots down deep into your word, to serve you as salt and light, and to be ambassadors in this world that you have called us. But Father, you also know that we get tired. We get worn out. We're tired of fighting. We're tired of arguing. We're tired of standing up for the good and the right and the true. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who are weary, that you would again pour into them the strength and the encouragement that they need, that they would lift their eyes above the hills, that they would ask themselves, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. Father, I also pray for brothers and sisters who have committed their lives to you, but for whatever reason right now they've been playing around. They have walked away from you. They have compromised in their spiritual life. They know that they're involved in activities that they should not be involved in, and they think that they're going to get away with it. But Lord, would you awaken in them the reality that as our, as our culture shifts, 
that it will become increasingly impossible for them to live these double lives. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, even today and even right now in this moment, would you challenge them that they would get on their face before you, that they would in repentance come before you and say, oh God, renew me, restore me, get me right back on the path, a white, hot, zealous faith. God, I pray that blessing for these two groups. And then Lord, for our church family, as we go through this season, would you guard us? Would you guide us? Would you keep us? We ask it for your glory. And we know that as you are glorified, we also experience great joy. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.